Let's pray together. Father, we turn to your word this morning and we pray as we explore it through the book of Genesis that you would speak to our hearts and you would call us to yourself. In Jesus' name, Amen. Before we're going to read from Genesis 32, I, I just wanted to fill us in and remind us of where the passage we're going to read fits in God's story. We were moving through the book of Genesis, and you'll remember Genesis starts with God creating a world, looking at it and saying it is good. Putting human beings in it that they might flourish, and they might grow, and they might fill it. Then Genesis tells us that human beings made choices that were not pleasing to God, choices to go their own way, choices to try to take things into their own hands, and everything falls apart from the fall of men and women. And in a sense, the rest of the Bible is all about that broken world that happened after that. But it's also about God's plan to put everything right. It wouldn't do just to wash everything away and start again, like it happened in the story of Noah. But rather, God is going to bring a blessing that is going to heal the world. And he does that by choosing the family of Abraham. That starts in Genesis chapter 12, and really is the rest of the story of the Old Testament. And and God says to this family of Abraham, I am going to bless you, but I'm not just going to bless you. It's not just about you and me and we'll all be friends together. I'm actually going to use you to bless the entire world, to bring a blessing to all the nations. And of course, we know the story because through the family of Abraham will eventually come the Messiah who brings good news and the healing of the cross to the whole of the world. The amazing thing about the book of Genesis and indeed the whole of the Old Testament is this though, it's this huge big plan that God has to heal the whole world through his son to bring in a new heaven and a new earth to make everything right again. But how he does it through people and the circumstances that they find themselves in. And that's really important for us because as we look at how God works, yes, there's this huge big plan that God has, but there's also how God works in our lives and our struggles and in our generation. The story, of course, of Abraham, we've looked at, we spent a few weeks on that, and we're shortly going to get to the story of Joseph, and we're going to do that through Lent. I think we're going to start that next week. Um, So if you've got one of these Genesis books, which is just the story of Genesis, um, you might want to read. And if you haven't got one of these, just in the next few few days and weeks, I would encourage you to read the book of Genesis, because we can't look at every part of the story, and we need to get the, the size of it. But we're looking at Jacob, and we started looking at Jacob last week, Jacob is the father of Joseph, the grandson of Abraham. And the the important thing about Jacob in in his story is that he starts broken. We're told that he was a twin. But right from the beginning, before he was born, he was grasping at his elder brother. He was trying to grab, take and hold. We are broken from before we are born, says the Bible he was also, as he was, as he was born, the victim of the circumstances around us. One of the things the Bible tells us is that parenting often gives good things to children, but often gives bad things to children. And well, Jacob was cursed with parents that played favourites. It's interesting. He will go on to play favourites. You know the story, as he has a favourite son among all the brothers. The sin in the generations that shapes and holds people back. But Jacob also made choices that were wrong. The story we saw last week was how he tricked his brother, his elder brother, by waiting till his brother was famished 
And taking advantage of his brother's stupidity and short-sightedness, he said, oh, well, give me your birthright and I'll give you some soup. But it was doing quite well. But it went on from that. If you read the rest of the story of Jacob, you'll know that he ends up tricking his father even worse. His dad is old and he's blind. And Jacob decides that he's going to sneak in and get the blessing that should be given to his brother. His mother's helping him to do this. This tells you a bit more about that brokenness in families in the Bible. And so he puts on some hairy clothes, some, some, some skins, so he can kid on to his father as he puts on a deep voice and pretends to be his elder brother. And he steals the blessing. So the story ends with the family being completely dysfunctional. When Esau finds out, he says, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And his mum, who's put him up to it, in a sense, has to say to her young son, you better run. And so he runs and he flees into the east. And the story goes on from there because he meets a guy called Laban. Uh, Laban is actually his uncle, but, but more than that, Laban is of the same broken family because if, if Jacob was a schemer and a chancer and a liar and a stealer, his uncle was even worse. But his uncle has a beautiful daughter. And Jacob meets her, he falls in love with her, he wants to marry her, and so he goes and asks Laban for his daughter's hand in marriage, and Laban sees him coming, thinks he can make a mug of a guy when he's in love. So he says to him, okay, but you don't have anything to bring to the family, so you'll have to agree to work for seven years for me without any reward. And at the end of seven years, you can marry my daughter. And he's so much in love that he says, yes, I'll do that. And so he works for seven years for Laban. Uh, and at the end, and I don't know how he managed this, but Laban does a switcheroo. And he, he gives them the older daughter to marry. And Jacob somehow doesn't realise this until after the wedding night. And we'll not go into that. Um, and, it, it, it's, but, and Laban says, that, well, you see, our custom is you have to marry the older one before the younger one gets married off. It's not fair otherwise. And so he says to Jacob, well, you can still marry the younger daughter, but it'll cost you another seven years. So he works for seven more years for his uncle. And then he marries, he, he marries the younger daughter. But then he does another chance. It's a long story, you can read it yourself, but he manages to trick Laban back and steal a whole load of Laban's crops and fields and cattle. And he ends up having to run away from Laban as well. The two guys are too alike in their chancing and their stealing and their, their tricking. And so Jacob turns back home to where his brother is because he's got nowhere else to go. And we pick up the story in chapter 32 of Genesis. So let's read these words. Jacob also went his way, and the angel of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God, so he named the place. Sorry, my eyesight's gone. You've got it, Ian, haven't you? Ma Mahanaim. So, Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I've been staying with Laban and have remained there until now. 
I have cattle and donkeys and sheep and goats, male and female servants. That's the ones he stole from Laban. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I might find favour in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he's coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. Doesn't sound good. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and the herds and the camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I have only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, surely I will make you prosper and I will make your descendants like the sand of the sea which cannot be counted. He spent the night there and for what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau. 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams. 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to and where are you going and and who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau. And and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second and the third and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. Be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him. But he himself spent the night in the camp. That night Jacob got up, took his two wives and his two female servants and his eleven sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. The man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip, so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. The man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. The man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, 
saying, it is because I saw God face to face, yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Amen. Thanks be to God for his rather strange word. It's quite a story, isn't it? I think one of the things that we can take from this is, is quite clearly that Jacob was not the most attractive man. A fighter, a schemer, a cheat, competitive. He was certainly ambitious. He wanted to go places. But he was really willing to treat people with contempt around him, to get, to grasp, to control the story. And here at the end of this story, he's like a prodigal. He's finally going home. Finally facing up to that which he cannot avoid any longer, the damage that he's caused. In fact, he's caught at this point, literally between a, a rock and a hard place. On one side is Laban, who is after him at this point. They have completely fallen out. And on the other side is the brother, who all those decades of Bogo left his parting words to him. I'm going to kill you. He can't go back. He can't go on. And in the middle of it is left this schemer, this chancer, this man who is obviously very intelligent, trying to sort things. You can see that in that desperate place of maybe if I send the gifts on ahead, maybe if I divide myself off, it'll be difficult to attack me. Maybe if I send all these presents to him, I can, I can appease them and it'll be okay. He's still desperately trying to control the situation. But it seems it's all coming unstuck. And that prayer in the middle of it that we saw in verses 9 to 11 is, is actually so moving. There he is and he says, Oh God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, that's the one he cheated, Lord, you said to me you would give me all these blessings. I am unworthy of the kindness and faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. He begins to look back at his life and he begins, I think, to come to terms with, with what he's done. And a sense of unworthiness. But also in the middle of it, a sense of utter helplessness. Lord, I'm desperate. I've got nowhere to turn. Help. I don't know if you, if you look back at your life, there's always some <laughs> significant moments that are emotionally branded and scarred in your memory. They're often associated with the places. Uh, for me, um, and Elaine's going to smile as I say this, Warwick. Now, nothing bad happened to us in Warwick, and if anyone's from Warwick, then um, it's sure it's quite a nice place. But it is impinged on our memory as a family. Nobody died. Nothing tragic happened. Nothing that in itself scared, but we had a moment of utter helplessness. We were travelling up from France. We'd been camping with a, a car laden full of all the camping gear and we stopped off for the night in a travel lodge and as we parked the car, we went into the travel lodge and we had two young girls with us and we were going home. 
But we were woken the next morning to be told that there had been a, a folk breaking into our car. And when we came down to the car park, the car windows were all smashed in and all our belongings were lying all over the car park. It had been completely raided. But worse was to come. Because it wasn't just that sense of having our, our, our vehicle stolen and ransacked and anyone that's had a burglary knows how that feels. But what happened next was the insurance company, when we eventually got through to them hours later, said that they could send out a guy to fix the windows tomorrow. And just as we heard that news and thought we weren't going to get the car fixed till the next day and we couldn't move the car because the windows were all smashed, the hotel said... We don't have any rooms tonight. And suddenly I was there as a father with two young girls thinking, I can't get the car fixed, I can't move the car, and we've nowhere to stay. Now, if you talk to me later, I'll tell you how we got out of the situation. That's not really the point. The point was, and I guess many of us will know it, that moment of utter helplessness. You're supposed to be able to make a phone call, particularly as a father looking after your family. You're supposed to be able to sort stuff. Suddenly you realise you can't. We were desperate and we were calling out to the hotel manager and to others, help us. Because we've got nothing to do. Nothing we can do. Joseph, like so many of us, was used to controlling the narrative, really. Something wasn't going right, he could fix it. He could come up with a scheme, he could plan, he could phone somebody, he could, you know, manipulate things and, and have control. And that's the way most of us run our lives. We maybe don't cheat as much as Joseph did, but we certainly are used to being in control of what's going on around us. And then those moments come where it's all taken away. Our pride is that we think we're in control and then we realise we're not. Mike Tyson, and I love this quote, one of these quotes I'm going to keep using, he said everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. And you suddenly realise that you're not in control. Folk talk about those um, come-to-Jesus moments, don't they? Those moments in life where actually you have to face up to where things are at. For Joseph, I think, for Jacob rather at that point, he had to face up to the reality of the very difficult situation he was in. By his own causing, in many ways. His brother at one side, Laban at the other side, and he had no more plans. The few things he was going to do were probably not going to work, and he's putting himself on God at that moment. You know, sometimes... I think God does that to us or allows that to happen to us putting us into a situation where we are not in control where we feel completely helpless and really we're not put there that we can learn to cope with it we're put there to realise what is a reality we are not actually in control we are not God we do not have control over life and death and the plans of the nations we are not sovereign we are not masters of our own destiny And that's just a reality, but we spend the entire time trying to pretend that we are. That's why we are so fiercely independent. People offer us help, we don't want to take it. Why? Because I want to feel I'm in control. The simple reality is, 
the come to Jesus moment, we're not in control. You know, we're entering Lent on, on, on Wednesday. I, I always find Lent a bit, bit strange because the minute I say Lent and we should do things for Lent, folks say it's a bit Catholic, isn't it? But I'll take the pancakes. You know? We do the pancakes, not the fasting. And Lent, I think, is about two things. It's about spending a time depending on God. Stripping away some of the other complications in life, the things that we enjoy, the complicated foodstuffs for many, and actually realising that we are dependent on God. This 40 days of Lent comes from the fact that uh, Israel had to travel 40 years in the wilderness, learning that they didn't live by bread alone or iPods and all the rest of it, but they lived by the word of God. They had to trust in him. Or Jesus in the desert for 40 days fasting, learning just to trust and know that he was held by his Father. You know, we are, uh, during Lent, going to invite folk to think about others and to give and to bring things for the food bank that is in Motherwell. Uh, uh, and it's a good thing to do, and, and I hope we will do it. But it was only after we'd agreed to do it, I thought, there's actually something wrong here, because one of the problems with doing things for others in Lent, and there's lots of challenges that ask us to do that, is again, it puts us back into control. I am strong, and I will give to those who need. But Lent, at its core, is actually about doing the opposite. It's about coming to God and saying, I am weak, and I think all these things are my strength, but actually they don't matter. All there is, is you. And that's the point that Jacob was at in this prayer, where he just said, I need you, Lord. There's nothing else. And then the passage ends with this wrestling match. Now, I'd love to be able to say to you, let me explain this weird passage. Here's all the answers to what it means. But I can't. I can't because it's weird. Uh, and because as much as I read a book or two, I don't fully understand it, and neither do the books that I read on it. And I think that's partly because there's a whole lot of stuff going on in the background here that we just don't understand. But I think actually, it's partly designed that way. We're told it happened in the dark, through the night. And this mysterious person comes. And I don't know that Jacob quite knew what was happening. I don't think we're supposed to know. But we're supposed to get this idea that this angel, this messenger, or was it God himself? Was it God in human form? We don't know. He came. And, and, and Jacob wrestled with him. Just like we might wrestle with this text. We want clarity. We want to understand it. We want to master it so we're in charge. We can read it. We can know and we can understand but actually this text is coming to us and saying, you don't. I don't know that Jacob knew what he was doing as he wrestled. It was instinct. Somebody was coming and trying to take over and trying to overpower him. And what did Jacob do? What Jacob always did, he fought back. He wanted to be in control. He wanted to wrestle this thing to the ground till he was in charge. Is that our instinct? 
whatever the problem is, whatever's coming at us, I want to wrestle it to the ground until I'm in charge. I'm in control. That's our instinct. Jacob, Jacob, as he wrestled with God, in a sense here was doing what he'd been doing his whole life. Wrestling and struggling to master the situation. There's a few things we can learn about this, actually. As Christians, as believers, sometimes we don't understand what God is doing. We don't understand where we're at, but we just need to keep, as Jacob does in conversation with God, working it through, asking the questions, struggling with it. But this struggling summed up his whole wrestling, restless life, never sitting still, fighting with God. Only this time, it was at the point in Jacob's life where he had already realised his self-sufficiency, his control was all crumbling. He saw Laban, all the desperate schemes coming back to haunt him. He couldn't provide for his family, he couldn't keep them safe anymore. It all felt so desperate. And as he begins to wrestle with God here, he's saying, let me go. Jacob just holding on. I need you, God. I need your blessing. I can't let this go. It's all I've got is you. Don't leave me. And then God does something that's, that's really strange here. We're told that this figure, this, this angel, whatever it is, reaches out and dislocates Jacob's hip. That's sore. Anyone ever dislocated a hip? Or a bone? It's sore. It's disabling. If you thought he was helpless before, now God says, I will make you utterly helpless. Utterly helpless. I want you to stop trying. Stop struggling. Just reach out to me. God dislocates his hip because God wants his heart. God wants him to throw himself on him and to trust him. And Jacob at that moment is both defeated and victorious because he surrenders everything to God. I think this passage brings us to that reality check that we are not in control. We never were. We can't change it, shape our lives. We can't live forever. We can't sort the world. We can't overcome our sins. We can't erase our pasts and the problems that we've caused. But the invitation from God is just to surrender to him. The come to Jesus moment. You know, when you're in the hands of God, it isn't always painless, is it? There is that bit where God wants to break us so that he can remake us. The Bible, it's interesting, when it, when it talks about God working with us, uses two images. Ephesians, Paul says, you're God's handiwork. He's literally saying you're God's masterpiece. God is taking his chisel and he is knocking bits off you. That can't be painless. As the things that are broken within us, as the things that we keep doing, God says, I want to change that. I want to shape that. I want to renew you till you're in a different shape. You're in the shape and the image of my son. Or Jesus, as he talks about being the true vine, what does he say? I'm cutting branches off you. I'm chopping bits off. I've got secateurs. 
And you need to let me do that if you want to be in me. Jacob understood a little bit about this plan that God had. This heritage. This birthright. This promise that he'd given that he was going to redeem the whole world through the family of Abraham. In fact, he wanted a bit of that, didn't he? He grabbed it, manipulated it, tried to get it any way he could. But what he didn't understand was it was really personal. This is the God who wanted him to be his and to rely on him. And we might be that with religion, with the church. We sort of believe all the stuff we we want to be part of it. But are we really willing to allow God to break us? To come to the foot of the cross is to come and say, I can't do this. I can't be my own saviour. I can't put this right. I can't heal this void. I have to rely on you doing that. It is a moment of complete brokenness and humility. But also a moment where we learn what is real. There is only one that can be trusted. Maybe you've never gotten to that point. You've been a mile away from it. Or maybe you've been for too long, even as a believing Christian, trying to do it your way. I know I have. But we are invited, like Jacob, simply to come to that point of saying, I need you, my Saviour. I need your blessing. I need your peace. I need to trust in you, rely on you for my life. Let's just pray for a moment. Father, we come just now. Your word is mysterious, like that angel that Jacob wrestled with, and it will have spoken to us in different ways. You'll put your finger upon us at the point we thought we were strongest, we realize we are weak. Just now, Lord, we would respond to you and we would cast ourselves upon you, admit our brokenness and our unworthiness. We turn to you. Be our Savior who died for us. Take us broken as we are and fill us again. Amen.